This episode of Hearsay is brought to you by Locus Studios, a full-service creative agency specializing in developing forward-thinking design solutions for linear minds. Learn more at locus.agency. started out very subtly. It's like the analogy of the frog boiling, right? You don't feel it. Megan Rudy understands better than most that domestic violence doesn't always look like we think it should. For many survivors of domestic violence like Megan, trying to get legal help is one of the furthest things from their mind. Navigating the legal system can be daunting for most people on any given day. But for survivors of domestic violence seeking legal services, the process can sometimes be nearly impossible. This is Hearsay from Law Week, Colorado. I'm Kaylee LeQuay. When we first started dating, he was, you know, saying that all of his friends thought that I was fat and unattractive and not smart and that he could do better than me. And that was within the first month. So, um, you know, I, I tried to leave him, you know, wasn't okay with that. But then he called back crying and saying, you know, everything I wanted to hear, like, we're soulmates, I'll change, I'll be better. Megan was with her ex-husband for five years. She's originally from Colorado, but they lived in New Jersey together. They were married by a magistrate in 2014 and had a ceremony the following year. Shortly after the wedding, their daughter was born, but the emotional abuse continued to escalate. From my experience, the verbal abuse and that just mind fog projections, all of that stuff is so much more damaging psychologically. You know, the financial abuse makes it impossible to leave. I think that is worse than the physical. And a lot of times, like, I was just waiting around for it to get physical. Like, I was waiting for him to hurt me so that I could leave. And I think that's what a lot of women face. They tried therapy, but things continued to get worse. There was always something wrong. Always, you know, the chicken was never cut small enough for him or... You know, so I was, you know, some days I was vacuuming two times a day because I was just trying my hardest to please him and he was never happy. A few months after they were married, he became physically violent for the first time. She decided to leave New Jersey with her daughter and came back to Colorado. She was fearful he wouldn't let her leave and he continued to contact her and threaten her. She filed a restraining order against him in Colorado. I'd been kind of putting it off for months, like I not, did not want to do it. He had been calling, like, every single night to talk. He would, every time he would call, I could just hear that cycle, you know, just, like, the crazy-making, like, blaming me for everything every time he would call. And so um, I went to the courthouse. They have a safe house advocate there, so I went and sat with her, and she held my hand. And I was there for, like, an hour just rewriting it. My hand was shaking. I was crying. I, I felt so sick to my stomach. Colorado Coalition for Domestic Violence Policy Director Lydia Walagorski says many survivors experience what Megan did. The process can sometimes just be too much to do on your own, especially in crisis. And Walagorski says reporting to law enforcement can often escalate violence in a relationship. For many years, Colorado was a mandated reporting state, meaning medical professionals treating domestic violence injuries were required to contact law enforcement on behalf of the victim. So many survivors just stopped getting help. They weren't getting preventative care. They weren't going. They were, um, our shelters were patching people up. They were patching each other up. It, it just wasn't working. The coalition helped draft House Bill 1322, which passed in May. The legislation makes mandated reporting more flexible. 
Healthcare providers can now refer patients to victim advocates and other services instead of calling police if the patient doesn't want that. But if the patient incurs serious bodily injury, healthcare providers must call police. But they still have to make an effort to notify the patient before they do so. What we were hearing from um, some of our emergency rooms was that law enforcement couldn't always get there before the patient was discharged, right? And so then it's, hey, I hear your wife went to the hospital for domestic violence. You want to talk about that, buddy? I mean, that's not putting anybody's safety at the forefront, right? Colorado has several different types of protection orders. Criminal protection orders are usually put in place by the district attorney, and they can remain in place through the full term of the sentence of the crime. But if the charges are dropped, so is the protection order. You can allegedly do this all on your own. It's overwhelming to people that are in trauma, right? And if you are at the point in your relationship or something has happened to you that you need to seek an emergency order and you need that to happen really quickly, um, the chances of you being able to kind of sit down and do that, you're kind of a diminished capacity at that point, right? And not my um, you know, lack of intelligence or lack of resources, it's just really overwhelming. <laughs> In domestic relations court, judges can determine things like child visitation, financial support, and residency rights, all the way down to who gets the car keys. That is really scary for a lot of survivors because you're sitting in the courtroom with someone that has hurt you. You're sitting in a courtroom with some pretty high stakes, right? And if you're sitting there and you're not represented by counsel, you know, you're sitting in front of the person that has abused you asking for the judge to make these decisions, and you're probably hearing an argument from the respondent at every step of the way. So it's really, it can be intimidating um, for that survivor to have to do that alone because this person has held so much power um, over them for so long and has, has been controlling because we know that, that domestic violence is, is those power dynamics and those control dynamics over, another, over your partner. So to go into that high risk situation or high stakes situation alone is really daunting. Megan couldn't afford representation for her divorce trial. When survivors are required to advocate for themselves in court, the process can be a nightmare. It was very expensive. I didn't have the finances for that. So I eventually ended up representing myself at the divorce trial, which was extremely scary. I didn't know what I was doing. I have my daughter full time, so I didn't have time to prepare as well. I um, was up until like four in the morning the night before the trial. She watched YouTube videos on pro se representation to prepare, but that didn't make the process any easier emotionally. Because I had the restraining order, he wasn't allowed to look at me or directly question me, and I wasn't allowed to look or directly question him, but we had to go through the judge. But we're all in the same room. It's just the three of us plus a police officer. (laughs) But yeah, it was still basically like I was questioning him, and it definitely made it harder, especially just keeping everything straight or like wanting to advocate for myself. Many times, cases proceed in the way Megan's did, starting with a protection order and then filing for divorce. But different courts can become involved simultaneously, and many individuals don't really have the financial and informational resources to sort it all out. Project Safeguard tries to close the legal representation gap for survivors of domestic violence, but they struggle to meet that need. My name is Alexis Freit. I'm the legal director at Project Safeguard. We see a lot of victims that... I uh, just can't afford uh, a private attorney. It's very expensive. And 
it makes a huge difference to have legal representation um, in their civil cases. So whether that's for um, a protection order or a, a divorce or allocation of parental rights, custody case, you know, these things are complicated. They're not easy to get. Um, so a lot of people think you could just go into court and get a protection order if you need one. That's really not the case. That's a lot more difficult than that. And providing victims with attorneys as much as we can is a, a huge goal. Um, because they, they really don't have access. And there are attorneys who will do um, pro bono services and agencies like Colorado Legal Services that provide attorneys, but it's not, it doesn't cover the whole gap of everybody that needs, needs an attorney. And as this gap has become more widely recognized, Colorado's followed in the footsteps of states like Washington and California, looking to institute licensing programs that allow individuals to practice law in a limited capacity within the realm of family law. Wallagorski says everything helps, but sometimes cases can be dragged out for years, and it can be difficult to find lawyers to take them on pro bono. Law firms are also starting to look at offering flat fee rates in family law and ways to make services more accessible. challenge our system has and I don't know what that solution is. Project Safeguard is a nice band-aid but it's a band-aid to cover a really big open wound. That's family law attorney Dan DC. He sees the risks unrepresented individuals take when they aren't aware of how a courtroom works. As a victim you get one shot in front of a judge. You don't get to say well judge maybe you've made your decision but can you go to lunch real quick and then come back and I want to make another run at it. We don't get that. And so that's tricky. And so that's from my perspective as an advocate. Imagine how the unrepresented convinces somebody of what's going on when they're in a courtroom, they've got a lawyer on the other side of the podium, they've got their perpetrator, they've got a judge who's trying to figure out well why would you continue to put up with that? What do you mean this happened before? And that victim is being revictimized. It's another situation where it's like, I just want to flee, I just want to go home, I just want to get out of here. And DC noted, lawyers are bound by ethical obligations regarding the treatment of pro se parties, but the rules are the rules and they apply to everyone. We have an ethical obligation to treat the unrepresented very well. The good lawyers I know take that very seriously. Uh, the dangers are, I mean, they're, they're huge. Not understanding evidence, not understanding procedure, not understanding just basic protocol. Uh, they face dismissal of their actions. There's all sorts of different things that can happen. I've watched many judges, with good reason, tell people in courtrooms, look, you don't have a lawyer, but understand all the rules apply to you. That's true, and it really has to be, because if you don't have black and white rules for the unrepresented, there's a very slippery slope that develops of, well, I like you, so I'm going to cut you a break, but I don't like you, so I'm not going to cut you a break, and I kind of like you, so I'll cut you a kind of break. That's really, really tough. Look, I don't have a magic wand I can wave and solve that, but as I like to say, when I'm king of the world, we'll change that. I'm not king yet. From Lawi, Colorado, this is Hearsay. <laughs>